Okay, we're up to week 38, the Ordinance of Covenanting. And this will be part one of talking about the Solemn League and Covenant. I want to read you again the fourth term of communion, that public social covenanting is an ordinance of God, obligatory on churches and nations under the New Testament, that the National Covenant and the Solemn League are an exemplification of this divine institution, and that these deeds are of continued obligation upon the moral person. <coughs> so, we're going to begin, we've talked for the last three weeks about the National Covenant and, and the uh, subject matter and, and the propriety of it. Um, we're going to be spending a few weeks going over the Solemn League and Covenant. And I'm going to talk to you, I'm just going to give you a little bit of background in a minute, but um, once we get through with these, we're going to look at the idea of covenant renovation, but eventually we're going to deal with the question of this other portion here, uh, descending or the continued obligation upon the moral person. So, uh, you know, you're paying it, you should be paying attention to this because, uh, although I'm not going to defend the proposition now, the idea is that there is something moral about these covenants, each of these covenants are exemplification, and that they're binding upon the moral person. And by that, we're talking about, uh, first of all, the church, <coughs> the Church of Scotland, uh, from which we're descended, is bound by these, these um, covenants. But uh, beyond that, the Solemn League, we will see, has a particular binding force uh, when it comes to the nation, and, and not just the nation of Britain, but it has a binding force on Britain and all of its uh, possessions and colonies uh, that were there at that time, all that have taken part in the British Empire, um, some people refer to it as the Anglo-American world. But the Anglo-American world it has experienced unprecedented prosperity, uh, in large part because of this covenant relation, but it also has experienced and will continue to experience uh, very severe chastenings. And um, that, too, has to do with this idea of descending obligation of the covenants. But that's mm -hmm. a, another topic. Uh, tonight we're going to begin looking at the Solemn League and Covenant in terms of the preface, but before I get into that, let me just make, as I said, a few preliminary remarks. <coughs> <coughs> the last two weeks in particular, we were looking at the additions that were made to the National Covenant in 1638, in 1638, Church of Scotland uh, and the nation renew their vows to God. They renew that national covenant. And that leads to a period of time that we call the Second Reformation, the Second Scottish Reformation. Direct result of this renewal of covenant. <clears throat> uh, 
in the South, in England, uh, the English Puritans were uh, taking note of, of developments in the North. And um, they were dealing with a number of problems. Uh, problems which in 1642 led to the first of three wars that would go on intermittently between 1642 and 1651. These were wars between the forces of the parliament, who were known as the Roundheads, and the, the Royalist faction, the supporters of Charles I, who were known as the Cavaliers. <coughs> uh, used to make me remark to people that real Covenanters don't drive Chevy Cavaliers. Um, but anyway, the, um, the fact is that the parliamentary faction was largely composed of Puritan forces that were um, made up of Presbyterians and Independents. As this period of time approached, these wars were approaching, <clears throat> the English Civil Wars. <clears throat> A number of people from the Parliament, in particular, approached Scotland for support. They wanted a military league. The Scots, having renewed covenants, said, look, <clears throat> we can't simply enter into a military league or alliance with you without a consideration of the true religion. You have to be bound to the true religion. And the English finally agreed, and so in 1643, they swore, together with Scotland and Ireland, they swore this solemn league and covenant. Now, one of the things that we're going to see, <coughs> one of the um, desires on the part of the Scots was that the English nation would finally be reformed that they would remove the prelatical church, the Anglican church would be replaced with the National Presbyterian Church, and that the, um, the Kingdom of England would, in its national church, reflect much more the Church of Scotland and the other Reformed churches on the continent, all of which were uh, Presbyterian. <clears throat> to the end that they would achieve uniformity of faith, uniformity of religion, between England, Ireland, and Scotland, it was appointed by Parliament, both the House of Commons and the House of Lords, that there would be... Um, an assembly of divines called, uh, and this was the origin of the Westminster Assembly. <coughs> so, the Solemn League and Covenant is actually the ground and 
provides us with an understanding of the spirit of what the Westminster Assembly was to accomplish. So the covenant itself was taken not only in 1643, but again, with an acknowledgement of sins and so on, it was re, uh, uh, was resworn or renewed in 1648 at the end of the assembly. <clears throat> the purpose of this covenant was to give to um, all who were involved uh, give them a vision, common vision, common goals, all of the things necessary to achieve both um, conformity, doctrinal conformity, and practical uniformity. <clears throat> and so this becomes, uh, I would argue, the, the living spirit, or this represents the living spirit of the Westminster Standards, and it's why when, I, I believe, when the Presbyterian churches ignore this, when they begin to dismiss this, when they are inclined to set it aside, uh, it doesn't follow far behind that they then start chopping up the director of public worship, the form of government, the Westminster Confession itself, or the catechisms. Because once you remove the idea that these are the um, products intended to bring about the covenanted uniformity that is sworn in the Solemn League and Covenant between all these nations, they no longer have the same authority. They're no longer viewed as being of the same authority. Right? These are covenanted standards. And covenanted standards are not standards that are there, you know, for your opinion. <coughs> if they're biblical, <coughs> if they are uh, consonant with the word of God, if in matters of circumstance they're reflective of the light of nature, uh, Christian prudence, the general rules of the word, then in those matters of government and worship, uh, again, they carry a preemptive authority, a covenanted authority. And if these covenants are binding on the moral person, then these are not simply suggestions. These are standards by which we can actually judge whether or not a particular congregation <clears throat> or church is faithful to those covenanted standards, attainments, and, and goals. Right, so that's just, I think, the short picture, um, and we can talk about that more as we go. So,
<coughs> the covenant, the Psalm-Lincoln covenant, as I, as I said, <coughs> it was intended by the English to uh, be a, a league that would enable or that, that would um, allow the parliamentarian party to rely upon the Scots for help against the um, royalists who were uh, at this point um, were doing a lot of things that were viewed to be uh, contrary to standing English constitutions. Uh, but in keeping with this, I, I just want to point out this as well. <clears throat> the Scots, and for that matter, I think most of the English Presbyterians, uh, once you get outside of the uh, independents who, uh, who took this covenant, many of them uh, saying that they didn't understand that it would imply that they become Presbyterians, um, We'll deal with that in uh, one of the future articles of the covenant, but it is um, <clears throat> it's important to understand that they took this not uh, with an eye to overthrowing the royal government or the House of Stuart. Uh, they took it really as a binding commitment on the part of the constitutionalists to rein in arbitrary power, absolute power in the monarchy, not simply displacing it. So <clears throat> I say that because in 1649, when Cromwell and the independents gain the ascendancy and bring Charles I uh, to be beheaded, um, the Presbyterians in Scotland, and I think many of the uh, uh, what we would call the loyal opposition in England, the Presbyterians, uh, they were not inclined to regicide. They they were not celebrating the idea of executing the king. Uh, they were not comfortable with that idea. Because it was really not what they were envisioning. And so they weren't particularly supporters of the, the Commonwealth under Cromwell. And later on, they, they will use language, and the Covenanters uh, do this as well. Uh, they'll use language such as this. They'll say that Cromwell was the usurper. <clears throat> and um, in fact... If you understand what Cromwell did, uh, what he uh, managed to pull off with his uh, so-called new model army, and how they um, uh, they became ascendant within the parliamentarian, what started out being the parliamentarian faction, and then uh, come to take the reins of power, um, and finally in 1651, the parliamentarians uh decisively defeat the royalist faction and that remains the case until the restoration of Charles II in 1660. So that period of time, uh, the period of time in England in particular, there is a lot of political foment going on. 
Uh, things were at this time actually much more stable in Scotland. They become much, uh, much more destabilized after Cromwell comes to power and especially after the uh, restoration of Charles II. <clears throat> Nonetheless, the Presbyterians were not, they were not looking to cut off the head as it were. They were looking to restrain the excesses and the, um, the arbitrary exercises of the House of Stuart. Uh, so, and, and as, as we go through this, I'm, I'm sure I'll have reason to point out some things about uh, the, the, the faction that becomes associated with Cromwell. Uh, the, the Roundheads uh, are really the independents. You know, they're not all that, um, but they, be, they were called that, and they tend to get uh, all sort of thrown into that. But uh, there, there was actually a, a relatively large Presbyterian presence in England uh, prior to Cromwell. Uh, and so their desire was really the reform of the Church of England and not uh, the destruction of synods and the power of synods and all of that, uh, or the really what amounted to the Erastianism that Cromwell brings in. <clears throat> so let's begin looking at the preface. We, noblemen, barons, knights, gentlemen, citizens, burgesses, ministers of the gospel, and commons of all sorts, in the kingdoms of Scotland, England, and Ireland, by the providence of God, living under one king, in being of one reformed religion, having before our eyes the glory of God, and the advancement of the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the honor and happiness of the king's majesty and his posterity, and the true public liberty, safety, and peace of the kingdom, wherein everyone's private condition is included, and calling to mind the treacherous and bloody plots, conspiracies, attempts, and practices of the enemies of God against the true religion and professors hereof in all places, especially in these three kingdoms, ever since the reformation of religion, and how much their rage, power, and presumption are of late, and at this time increased and exercised, were of the deplorable state of the church and kingdom of Ireland, the distressed state of the church and kingdom of England, and the dangerous state of the church and kingdom of Scotland, are present in public testimonies. We have now at last, after other means of supplication, remonstrance, protestation, and sufferings, for the preservation of ourselves and our religion from utter ruin and destruction, according to the commendable practice of these kingdoms in former times, and the example of God's people in other nations, after mature deliberation, resolved and determined to enter into a mutual and solemn league and covenant, wherein we all subscribe, and each one of us for himself, with our hands lifted up to the Most High God, do swear." <clears throat> so when they talk about um, the true reformed religion, uh, they're saying what everyone at the time would have recognized, and that is to a 
more or less uh, degree of purity, England, Scotland, and Ireland were declared to be Protestant nations. They were not Romish. Uh, all of them in varying degrees and varying ways had, uh, in fact, <clears throat> excluded the jurisdiction of the uh, Pope of Rome. Uh, we saw that explicit in the National Covenant in Scotland, but there were legal statutes and so on in England and in Ireland, uh, especially seeing that Ireland was um, uh, ruled by, again, the same king, and that this being ruled by the same king had come to pass uh, in 1603 with the death of Elizabeth and James VI, now James I, uh, moving to England. Uh, now they're under Charles I, who's the son of James I. James died in 1625. <clears throat> Charles, <coughs> Charles assumes the throne, and he will remain king until his execution by Cromwell and his people in 1649. Um, so they're, they're looking at what they have. They have a commonality. They're all ruled by the House of Stuart. They have another commonality. Uh, they've renounced Romanism. But Ireland <clears throat> has an active Romish faction. And they're trying to take Ireland back for the Roman Church. England itself is struggling because of the structure of government and the liturgy. Uh, they have a popish form of government and a popish liturgy, as the Scots would say. And, and this association places Scotland in a continually dangerous position. <clears throat> Theoretically, they're all the same kingdom, <clears throat> but if if they're going down uh, that path of returning to Rome, it's a problem for Scotland. So Scotland, they do have an interest and a desire, but their interest and their desire is in fact um, tempered by certain political realities, uh, differences in Ireland and in England. So the Scots are interested in helping, but they don't want to help without uh, this explicit um, covenant that that the uh, Church of England and, and by extension the Church of Ireland are going to be made over, as we'll see um, in one of the following articles, uh, there are six articles, and, and then a conclusion in this covenant. And we'll be looking at an article each week. <coughs> um, the, the fact is, they're being, in this covenant, bound <coughs> to become Presbyterian. And um, they want that to be not only a, a reform in government, but also in worship. Uh, the Scots don't like <clears throat> the um, the Anglican forms. Uh, there is a letter by um, Samuel Rutherford 
written early on when he was he was one of the commissioners from Scotland to the Westminster Assembly, and he wrote a letter uh, at one point saying that uh, he wrote a letter back to Scotland saying he's in London now uh, for this assembly, and that there are no sound churches in London that he can find. He said the soundest of them are of the independent way. In other words, the independent Presbyterians. Uh, but he doesn't really have good things to say about them being independents. So Rutherford is clearly unimpressed with the, the ecclesiastical state and wants to see a thorough reform. And um, it turns out that the vast majority of the divines, the theologians, the pastors who are brought to the assembly uh, themselves all are interested in this reform. <clears throat> so, we're going to look at a number of questions that are uh, really brought to mind by the preface. I've got eight or nine questions here. What is it? Nine. Nine questions. All right. Each one of them is really based upon something that's said here in the preface. I didn't want to break this up too much. It's not very long, and so um, I, I read the preface all together. But we can see uh, we're going to be following the order of what appears in the preface and asking these questions. So question one. Is it incumbent upon men of all ranks and stations to engage in public social covenanting, and especially on those who are ministers of the gospel? And the answer is yes. And uh, to, to make this point, I want to look at a few passages. Uh, Deuteronomy 9, uh, 29, 9-11, to uh, 2 Kings 23, 1-3, and 2 Chronicles 34, verses 29-32. Keep therefore the words of this covenant and do them that you may for all that you do, you stand this day, all of you, before the Lord your God, the captains of your tribe, and your elders, and your officers, and all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the stranger that is in thy camp, from the fear of thy wood, and the power of thy water. 2 Kings 23, verses 1 through 3. And the king sent, and they gathered unto him all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem. And the king went up into the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great, and read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant which was found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all their heart and all their soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people stood up to the covenant. Second Chronicles 34, verses 20. And the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up into the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests of the Lord, and all the people, great and small. And he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant that was found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to 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 the all that were present in Jerusalem, 
<clears throat> so, <clears throat> there's one thing certain. <clears throat> Israel, <clears throat> which was formed to be a covenant nation, Israel, again and again, when they are, as we're going to see, faced with um, particular challenges, uh, they are very much forward to engage in this kind of covenanting. <coughs> and so they, um, they go forward to covenant, they um, they engage themselves to covenant, and by doing this, uh, they are taking in all ranks of society, particularly those who are involved with the religious exercises, the public religious exercises. The reason for this is the things which are contemplated in the covenant have bearing. If you remember the national covenant, <clears throat> we saw and we discussed a little while, uh, for, for a little while the, um, the obligations that men have are obligations which are uh, they're, they're obligations that are that are laid upon people to the extent of their ability and their station in life <clears throat> so that ministers have a particular obligation uh, with this matter of true religion but magistrates also have an obligation. And shop owners, business keepers, tradesmen have a particular obligation. And fathers and patriarchs of families and mothers and children and everyone in the society, all of them bear peculiar relations to the same obligation. So to bring all of them into this covenant, to enjoin it upon all uh, is is something that we see going on in the Bible, and we see that the same went on in Scotland, and now uh, we're seeing it here very clearly in England. Uh, when England, uh, of course, this is not just England; this is England, Scotland, and Ireland who are taking this in the persons of their representatives. The reason why. <clears throat> Uh, is every man is in charity bound to be an to be an angel to unmindful Jacob in point of his vow to God and monitor his backsliding brother. Look at Romans fifteen fourteen. It's the office of believers to admonish one another. Uh, it's, it is the office of everyone who has an interest in this covenant to admonish one another 
when we see that there is some kind of lagging or slacking or or uh, failure, right? To give encouragement, to give support. Um, the fact is that when everyone is mindful of something, it's harder for this or that person to become unmindful of it, right? The, the, the more public the standard of behavior or morality, for example, uh, the harder it is for some individual to fall out of that, right? In a society where, <clears throat> for example, uh, drunkenness or fornication, <clears throat> where they were frowned upon, as it would have been a hundred years ago or more in this country, in most Western countries, it was harder for people to deviate from that rule, right? Even if they wanted to. And that prevented a lot of, of ancillary problems. You know, when people are left alone, when they're left to their own devices, and this is why, again, why assemble together? Why gather? Why all this emphasis on getting together? Uh, because <clears throat> it's much harder to fall into sin when you are continually uh, recognizing, I'm going to be talking to other believers, uh, you know, again and again, right? And, and so now imagine that what they're doing in this covenant is they're, in, in essence, they're spreading that over the whole nation, or all the nations that are contemplated, and <clears throat> they're making it something which is not only going to be, um, you're not only going to be being held accountable, as it were, uh, when the church gathers, when, when uh, members of the congregation are assembled, but literally... Whenever and wherever you go in society, you're not going to be able to escape that. All right, so it especially belongs to God's ministers who are God's watchmen against sin and his people's remembrancers unto duty, who are not only by common charity, but also by special office, bound to give warning against approaching evil, contracting guilt, and impending judgments of God, and that as they will acquit themselves from the blood of those immortal souls who slip into and perish by their sin. Get Isaiah 62, 6. Verse 6. I set watchmen upon thy walls of Jerusalem, which shall never hold up their peace day or night. Ye that make mention of the Lord keep not silence. You that make mention of the Lord, uh, make mention of the Lord, literally the Lord's remembrancers. In fact, uh, this text is used by one of the Westminster divines. There's a, a sermon he did on the Lord's remembrancers that is derived from this text. But this idea is that uh, it's the duty of ministers and elders particularly to remember for everyone else right everyone else uh, is they're out doing other things uh, it's easy to get temporary amnesia 
right? To forget what you're supposed to be doing. Uh, but they're supposed to remember it for you. Also, look at Ezekiel 3, uh, 6 to 20, and 33, 7 to 9. Ezekiel 3, 6 to 20. <clears throat> I came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the word of my mouth and give the morning for me. I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life. The same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thy hand. Yet if thou warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. And again, when a righteous man doth turn from his righteousness and commit iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because thou hast not given him warning, he shall die in his sin, and his righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood will I require at thine hand. So thou, son of man, I set thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore thou shalt hear the word of my mouth, and warn them from me. When I say unto the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt truly die, if thou hast not to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. So again, it is the duty really of everyone to remember, right? To remember your duty, to be mindful of uh, avoiding sin. You know, if you see your brother sinning, you are to go to him privately and, and say, look, that you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. <coughs> and if that doesn't work, then you take witness and then finally you, you may have to bring it before the church. In this scenario of the, the Solemn League, they're bringing all society into play on this point. Right? Everyone who's contemplated in the taking of this covenant, <clears throat> everyone has an obligation. Now, will they all exercise it? Probably not, right? But they're all authorized. They're all called to do just that by this covenant. Whatever their station, vocation, power, influence, <clears throat> whatever it is, it's to be turned to and focused upon achieving the ends that we'll see are being mentioned in this covenant. And that that's a proper thing. Right? This is a proper biblical uh, expectation, really. Right? In the church, <coughs> there should be an expectation that people will uh, that people will try to help you avoid sinning, uh, or that people will try to remind you of duty. <clears throat> but again, 
that is the special or particular duty of ministers of the gospel. They're, they are, in fact, to be watchmen. And this is why um, it's important, you know, that people who are charged to preach the gospel, that they declare the whole counsel of God, <clears throat> you know, which you don't get when people are focused on only one or two issues. On the other hand, um, you also don't have it when people, though they might touch on a number of issues, uh, they refuse to touch on the so-called hot topics of the day, right? Don't want to get involved in those questions. They don't want to give any direction in, in regard to those difficult or um, hotly contested matters. <clears throat> it really belongs to ministers to be at the forefront of this kind of, of thing. Um, it also, by the way, um, is important, and although we're not really focusing on that here, but in the civil realm, it's actually important that the magistrate, particularly the chief magistrate, uh, that he refrains from characterizing that which is evil as being good or vice versa. Right? It, it's, <clears throat> it's a travesty when these, um, uh, these politicians today are seen out there supporting, for example, the radical uh, sodomite agenda, right? This is a problem. Uh, or when they're out there supporting, um, you know, the the uh, abortion movement and the the uh, the whole Planned Parenthood movement and all of that, it's a problem. Okay, they're they're supposed to be standing in the gap. Uh, they're supposed to be speaking the truth. Right. And in fact, the more wicked a society, the more you would expect the truth would excite a visceral reaction in that society. Yeah. Yes. Yes. What we're doing in terms of yes. Yeah, it is. It's it's a, the mirror opposite. If you could, you know, if you could um, look in the mirror and see that, you know, uh, what was that that game? <clears throat> some game that kids used to play, uh, where I, I don't know if you said something opposite or uh, the object was to be as opposite. You know, say something is opposite or behave in a way is opposite or something like that. That's what was a weird game for kids has actually become uh, the uh, aspirations of a uh, an anti-Christian society. But a, a truly Christian society is not going to look at something like <clears throat> a brother trying to correct you and sort of goad you into the right way or just, you know, clean up this little loose end or whatever. 
not going to be this outbreak of uh, appreciated that you brought that up. Yeah, you're not going to need to run to a safe space. Right. right. Yeah. And that, that's that's really what it comes down to. All these people are telling you I need a safe space. What they're, what they're telling you is it, they, you could replace it with this. I hate true religion. I hate Christianity. Because it all flows from that. Right? If you can't handle hearing something, particularly when it's the truth, um, that is a sign of a very deep-seated hatred of God. It's a very bad thing in a society. And um, while the church can address it in its own way, uh, to a certain extent, it remains, uh, it's it's actually something the chief magistrate has to address. As unpopular as it may be, uh, it's something I think the chief magistrate has to um, uh, sort of smash that out of people. Right, because they're, they have the power of the sword. So they're, they're using, uh, when, when people talk about the bully pulpit, and Teddy Roosevelt talked about the bully pulpit, <clears throat> uh, the presidency really is, in that sense, a bully pulpit uh, because they are, you know, the, the government, civil government is about law and order and justice, right? In a, Christian society, it should be tempered with grace, uh, but they don't begin there, right? And they they can't simply they don't have the right, for example, to just simply forgive someone who has murdered other people. In fact, I uh, I heard a discussion uh, because there's right right now the um, the federal government is going to re um, reauthorize execution, you know, the federal realm, and there was. A discussion by by someone, <coughs> and he kept saying that uh, <clears throat> if he could if it could be shown that the death penalty is a deterrent, then maybe he would become convinced that uh, we should use death penalty. But it can't be that there's no credible deterrent. That we don't have any statistics showing whether you have it or not. The rate of crime changes. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> my answer to that is is this, and uh, that sentiment could only arise if you fail to recognize that the purpose of the magistrate is to see that justice is done, and that there is something much more powerful, and over time, you know, are you going to see the effects immediately? No, but a consistent application of justice has the power to restrain wickedness at every level. And and the thing is, you can't just restrain it at one level. You have to restrain it at every level. Yes. Yeah. So the point is, um, we, we should have a death penalty not as a deterrent to crime, although it is 100% deterrent for those who are executed, um, but it's simply a matter of justice, right? There's this idea of justice, which has to be maintained in order to have a society where, wherein people come to have a reasonable expectation, right? Keeping the law 
is the realm of peace, breaking the law. I've made war against all of society. But in a society where there are no norms, that's hard for people to understand. <clears throat> all right, let's move on to question two. <clears throat> At the highest end of any covenant to be the glory of God. And the answer is yes. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Uh, the, really, the um, <clears throat> the chief end of man we know to be the glory of God. <clears throat> so this matter of covenanting shouldn't be any surprise, or should it, that this too should be to the glory of God. Right? Pretty simple proposition, I think. Uh, it is, after all, the great principle of the Christian faith to believers and the chief end of all men, as I say, to do all that they do to the glory of God. So Colossians 3, 17 and 23. Colossians 3, verse 17. What shall we do in the word or deed of all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him? Verse 23. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Okay, so that's our takeoff point, right? We start with that. Uh, that is ground zero for all proper action and all proper thought. It's no surprise then that they're saying in this covenant that we want to have <clears throat> our eyes to the glory of God. At least it shouldn't be. Okay, That's telling you that their uh, their intention is not just a good intention, but it is a good intention informed by and undergirded by the the word of God. <clears throat> now, keeping in mind that covenanting is an ordinance of divine worship, which has for its great and leading design. To give homage to God by an avowal of our complete submission to and dependence upon Him. Look at Isaiah 59 21. The scripture presents covenanting as not only swearing by the Lord of hosts, but as swearing to him. So look at Isaiah 45, 23 to 25, and Isaiah 56, 6. Of the Lord to serve him, and love the name of the Lord to be his servants, everyone that keeps the Sabbath from polluting it, and to hold of my covenant. 
Right. To the same effect is that described in the New Testament. Look at uh, Romans 12.1 and 2 Corinthians 8.5. Romans 12, verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, only acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. 2 Corinthians 8.5, This thing is not as we hoped, but first gave it ourselves to the Lord, and unto us by the will of God. Okay, so, again, <coughs> The glory of God is the end, the chief end of man. Uh, the glory of God should be the chief end of one of the uh, highest acts of corporate consecration. Uh, the consecration of the moral person, whether church or state or both. Uh, that covenanting should be to that end, right? To the glory of God. It should be seeking the glory of God. Now, um, and we... We understand that the the glory of God that we're seeking to augment is the declarative glory of God, and that has to do with the mediatorial reign, and that in turn has to do with the salvation of men. But it has to do with the salvation of men, <clears throat> not as an end in itself, but unto an end, which is to then voluntarily... Uh, render an acceptable obedience to God. So all of that, all that they're saying, all that they're doing is pledging themselves, covenanting to that kind of end. All right, question three. Uh, what public social covenants to take in the honor and happiness of the Supreme Magistrate? Uh, Short answer is yes. Look at Joshua 1, uh, 8 and 9. Joshua 1, verse 9. This book of the law shall not depart from thy mouth, thou meditate therein day and night, that thou observe to know all that is written therein. Thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Have not I commanded thee, and of good courage, be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. Public social covenants um, when they're taken at this level uh, they should be concerned not only with the um, the prosperity of true religion but also with the uh, the stability and the honor and happiness of those who are charged to oversee the civil life of the nation. Right? So what was written to Joshua is actually applicable to all who rule. Uh, after all, Joshua gets this from Moses. Look at Deuteronomy uh, 17, 18, and 19. <clears throat> Right, so <clears throat> it's the duty of the Supreme Magistrate to be mindful of the divine law, to seek its enactment, to seek 
uh, in fact, to seek the, um, uh, the to see that the the spirit of the law is being uh, observed in those who are called uh, and and ordered under uh, said magistrate. Duties of lawful civil governors and the people under them, owing by these classes respectively to, to one another, ought to be vowed. Look at Ezra 10.3. Now therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and such as are born of them according to the counsel of my Lord and of those that tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. <coughs> so again, you know, as it not only... Moses, but we can see from Moses to Ezra, and Ezra is really the one who's going to give the what we call the Old Testament its final shape. Uh, and this rule is still enforced. The magistrate has an obligation to the divine law, and so do the people. The magistrate doesn't have a right to um, start enacting all kinds of things contrary to the law, the divine law. And uh, if he does, you know, quite frankly, the people have no obligation to it. <coughs> so, we see that, uh, that this mutual respect in covenant ought to be observed. Right, we see it is in Ezra Nehemiah's time. The fact is that they're both their their duties to God, right? Their duties to God. These uh, things that are being sworn, the duties of lawful governors and the duties of the people to those governors. We get Psalm forty-seven seven. Psalm forty-seven verse seven. God is the King of all the earth. He praises with understanding. God is the king of all the earth. And so the idea is if if the magistrate, the chief magistrate, and the people are all really uh, subject to one duty, one enforcing it, the other obeying it, that doesn't mean the enforcers are left uh, to their own devices, right? They're not above the law. Because of this, they are therefore included in the oath of allegiance, which both kings and subjects ought to swear to him. Look at Second Kings eleven seventeen. So what is Jehoiada doing? <clears throat> he's the uh, he's he's saying, look, let's make sure that the king abides by the divine law uh, that will make him God's king and the people should abide by that law as well and that will make them God's people and when king and people are both in proper submission to the law of God uh, then they're in covenant with one another and with God it's pr it's possible for all of that all of them to be in covenant together Remember, there's no, there's no law, or excuse me, there's no uh, covenant, lawful covenant, <clears throat> that could possibly take in or demand or 
in any way circumvent that divine law. You know, they, they can't demand that you do something contrary to divine law. They can't circumvent that divine law. The, the fact is that a lawful covenant has to take the law of God as it comes from God. We can't we can't make try to make something good that God says is bad or something bad that God says is good. So lawful magistrates, moral ordinances of God are in submission to this. But if they're not, they're not the moral ordinance of God. It's a different proposition. It's something that we're going to get into a little bit when we get to the idea of covenant renovation. But the fact is that they're they're not, and they can't be considered uh, the ordinance of God if they're going to go down that route. If a civil constitution is according to the word of God, if the rulers who carry its ordinances into effect are men fearing God and hating covenant, covetousness, look at Exodus 18.21, 2 Samuel 23.3, they dis- dispense in a righteous manner its just laws obedience and is due by the people and ought to be vowed to God first Peter 2 13 and 14. Yeah, it needs to be noted that the Bible is not um, a manual that demands an absolute unconditioned submission to authority, right? It demands submission to lawful authority, authority that is expressive of that divine law. And in fact, you have to understand, if you disobey lawful authority, uh, whether it's parents or the ministers or the magistrates, uh, that is, when, when they are in their various stations, when they're declaring to you the word of God, when they are telling you what is right, to disobey them is the same as disobeying God. Right? <clears throat> what you're doing is you are trying to hide a rebellious spirit under uh, a, a mere pretext. <clears throat> but the fact is that you can't do that. So, you know, it's it's something different. If they're, if they're commanding you to do something uh, outside of or beside the, the law of God, that's a different matter. Right? They don't no one has a right to tell you to do something and bind your conscience outside of uh, the divine 
will. All right? There, there's just nothing that can bind you. Now, uh, the magistrate and your parents have a right to bind you with regard to certain matters of order and decency. Uh, they have a right to bind your body. They can bind your conduct. They can't bind your conscience, but they can bind your conduct, uh, so long as it's not contrary to the word of God. But in this matter of civil constitutions, <clears throat> to try to enforce something contrary to the word of God is tyranny. Right? To try to enforce something that would undermine uh, or, or make impossible the, the true service of God is tyranny. Uh, to do something that would would undermine the true declared freedoms that God has given man would be tyranny. So we're talking about dispensing the, the true law of God, the, the, the word of, ruling according to the word of God, uh, dispensing the law in the just laws in a righteous manner, that's where obedience is due. <coughs> and let, let we should just complete this by saying it cannot be done completely uh, for the Lord's sake, which isn't vowed to him. Right. So this is why covenanting is so important. Look at Numbers 30, verse 2. Why can't there be a that that um, that just obedience done completely for the Lord's sake without vowing to Him? Because God wants a cheerful giver, right? God wants you to render a willing obedience not simply slavish obedience right so obedience obedience uh, for the sake of the law is of course um, that constitutes an outward obedience but God is looking for that inward obedience to the heart and that requires vowing and again this is why this idea of covenanting, is such an important, powerful thing when it comes not only to the ecclesiastical realm, but to the civil realm. <clears throat> so, question four. Ought public social covenants to be concerned with true public liberty, safety, and peace, including everyone's private condition? The answer is yes. Galatians 6.10. We are under an obligation <clears throat> um, in general. And if in general, then it ought to be a proper matter of covenanting that we might render that which was obligatory voluntarily, right? That we can render that same obedience. Fact is, everyone ought to promote the welfare of his neighbor. Philippians 2 4. Philippians 2 verse 4. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. 
Yeah, this idea, am I my brother's keeper, is in every age the motto only of the murderer. Genesis, uh, look at Genesis 4 9. Genesis 4 9. <clears throat> and the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, And are not, am I my brother's keeper? Yeah, that that is, when people start talking that way, they're talking that way to hide their own sin. <clears throat> so the rejection of covenanted uniformity in a society, whether we're talking about a family, a church, or a nation, is really a shift to conceal a lot of sin. Right? People who want uh, to have this radical, um, this this radical disconnect, are already engaging in a sinful way of thinking. Right? Am I my brother's keeper? The 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 rest of the Bible is going to answer that again and again. Yes, yes, yes. And if it's not clear enough. That's the whole point, isn't it, of Jesus coming and dying. He's saying, absolutely, uh, think about it. He had nothing to do with man falling into sin, um, and yet he steps up and in the greatest of ways shows himself to be his brother's keeper. Uh, again, the point of that parable uh, of the Good Samaritan, right? <clears throat> Same idea, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes, yes, yes. You see someone in need and you do nothing for them, uh, you bear some guilt and responsibility. If you have, uh, to the extent that you had the ability to alleviate someone's poverty, suffering, whatever, uh, and you did nothing about it, you know, you have some responsibility to bear. All right? We're not exempted from this uh, this this radical unconcern for other people is the as we say it's the motto of the murderer you know murder murder is simply the most um, visceral and and uh, visible symbol of of what's going on in the heart of someone who asks that kind of question. Right? If you can actually ask that question, am I my brother's keeper? You may not be an actual, you know, murderer, but you're a murderer at heart. And Jesus is going to call you out on that in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so this is an important point. Uh, and you, you can't avoid that. So if that's the case, you know, should this be a concern? Of public social covenants? Well, sure it should. Right? I mean, true public liberty, safety, and peace has to have some um, some consideration for everyone's private condition. This is exactly why, by the way, uh, already in Scotland <clears throat> at this time, what have they done? in the books of discipline. They've made it clear that the church is going to provide for uh, the welfare of the, the poor, for the education of the young, 
and even for the treatment of the sick, right? They're, they're, they're going to, to um, they're going to have a radical concern. They have a radical concern in Scotland for that kind of, of um, those kinds of situations. You know, when, when I hear uh, churches that are unconcerned, I hear people, they're unconcerned about education or, you know, uh, health or, or, um, or the, the care of the poor. Um, if they think these are not the business of, of the nation and particularly a nation uh, through an established church, then I, I really wonder at their commitment to core Christian values. Right, because that goes back to this question, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes. And I think I've said it before, but you know, the, the impulse in Western secular democracies, uh, the impulse to public education, uh, public health care, and, and public welfare programs, uh, that's just, these are uh, the results of uh, this socialism is a result of uh, the um, the abandonment of the Christian faith. These things would have been taken care of and should have been taken care of in and through and by the church as the Church of Scotland was uh, modeling. Right? It's what happened in, in Israel and it's what happened in Scotland. It's what ought to happen. Thus, various duties of the members of civil society are proper matter of solemn covenant engagements in Second Chronicles uh, 34, 30 to 32. <coughs> So, you know, these concerns are concerns that are woven into the very fabric of uh, not only the um, the national covenant of Scotland, but now uh, there there are hints here already that these things are going to be uh, prosecuted from the point of view of the covenanters in England and Ireland as well. Right, question five: uh, Should those engaging in public social covenanting be motivated by a concern for the unity? in civil government and religion? Again, the answer is yes. Uh, short answer, look at Luke 11, 2. 11, verse 2. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, the kingdom come. The will be done as in heaven, so on earth. Yeah, the, the desire to see the coming of God's kingdom 
<coughs> that's really what's behind this, right? And it consists in two things. Um, the first is the subduing of the nations to his gospel. I want to look at Psalm 9, 17 and Revelation eleven fifteen. So the kingdoms of this world are established and unified in in lawful constitutions when the hand of God is upon them. Look at First Kings two twelve. Uh, and Daniel 4, 34 to 37. <laughs> Whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. Now the inhabitants of the earth are two that does nothing, and we do it according to the army of heaven, and the inhabitants of the earth. As you say, what do we sell? And by reason of my kingdom, my honor and my is returned unto me. And my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I Nebuchadnezzar that praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth, and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abuse. And so they are dissolved by disregard of the commands of the Lord, First Samuel 13, 13 and 14. Samuel 13, verses 13. <clears throat> Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. Now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, that thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded. <clears throat> so, again, uh, un unity in civil government, well, there has to be a sub the, uh, the nation has to be subdued, right? A subjection of the, the nation and the, and the laws of the nation to the word of God. When all the nations are in submission to Christ, uh, then there'll be that kind of unity. But that that should be a motivating concern for all covenanting to see that that comes to pass, right? Because this is the necessary condition for the stability of the kingdom or the nation. Right? That there be a proper relation to God <clears throat> and to the administration of the divine law in that society. That same concern for unity in religion, this is the second point, coming of king, God's kingdom uh, consists in two things. Number two, the unity of God's people in his truth. Look at Psalm 133, 1 and Ephesians 4.13. Um, 
verse 13, until we all come in the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, and to the perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And we know that this occurs when all God's people are joined in the same confession and judgment. 1 Corinthians 1.10, Philippians 3.16. So, Unity in a kingdom or a nation is only actually achievable when the nation, the people of the nation, and its rulers together are in submission to the same divine moral law. Right. Without that, there is going to be strife. There's going to be a contention. I mean, how can two walk together if they're not agreed? They can't. You know, if, if you have a radically different idea of what's right and wrong, you know, you think it's okay to rip little children apart in the womb and suck them out with a vacuum. And I think it's murder. I can't see a point where you and I are going to agree. You think that uh, now <clears throat> there are more than two genders. You know, and I know that there are only two. Uh, there's no room for compromise in these kinds of areas. You know, you think that two men or two women uh, can marry. You know, how do we end up in this situation? We end up in this situation because the law is in a state of flux. And it's in a state of flux because there's been a wholesale rejection now for generations of the divine moral law. And it's been this way throughout Western societies in particular. There's been an assault on the moral law of God. can't have unity in a society that way. <clears throat> you know, there used to be that um, nationally, there was a general agreed upon uh, system of, of mores, right? We, we understood that certain things are expected of men and other things of women. We understood that there were certain behaviors expected in public, uh, that children behaved one way, that adults behaved another way. We had all kinds of, of expectations. And they were shared. You know, the political realm was one where, uh, for the most part, uh, people were arguing mainly about... Um, uh, administrative matters, not on the nature of what is good and evil. <clears throat> when it becomes about that, you know you're in the midst of a religious 
uh, war. The same with the the, uh, the church. <clears throat> Unity of religion. <clears throat> right. The Bible doesn't say uh, that it's okay to believe whatever you want to believe. That you can practice the faith however you want to practice. And that was never the idea or the ideal. So this idea of unity, by the way, is something that um, even though Philip Nye is one of the people who is advancing the Solemn League and Covenant in the beginning, wants to enlist the Scots on behalf of England, Nye is an independent. And later on, he and some of the independents are going to complain bitterly about what they think has now been discovered in the Solemn League and Covenant that was intolerable. You know, that it was it was not tolerant of their independency. And Samuel Rutherford, in his book Against, Against Pretended Liberty of Conscience, uh, comes very close to just calling them flat-out liars, that they could actually say things like that. Uh, they had the Solemn League and Covenant, and we have statements like this in it. And if you just stopped and reflected for a couple of moments on what this must entail, uh, you couldn't possibly think that the end of the, the uh, Psalm League and Covenant would be to allow for independency in the realm of religion or that kind of independency in thinking even in the civil realm. <clears throat> so uh, the independence really at their feet uh, you can you can lay all of the the perversion you see around us today because it's the fruit of independency all right it's it's this idea that everyone has a right to believe whatever they want to believe it's not what the solemn league and covenant is saying it's seeking unity in civil religion and or in civil government and in religion, right? There's there's a search for unity. Not you know, they, they had no idea. The Psalm League and Covenant didn't buy into the modern myth that diversity is our strength. Right? They understood that it, what made a nation strong, what makes a church strong, is to have a unified way of thinking and acting. <clears throat> All right, question six. Should those engaging in public social covenanting be motivated by a remembering of the plots of the enemies of God against the true religion, both past and present? The answer is yes. Psalm 50, verse 15. Psalm 50, verse 15. <clears throat> And call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. Yeah, the fact is this. The remembrance of those who plotted against the true religion should be recorded for this purpose. Look at Esther, uh, chapter 2, verses 21 to 23. Who the king's chamber is to be in the 
So the king, you know, they, they knew enough to write down when there were these plots and conspiracies. Why? Well, because such a book of remembrance uh, is of great use to those who truly fear the Lord, uh, especially in the cause of true religion. Uh, we see that alluded to, I think, in part, at least in Malachi 3.16. Yeah, so why do we have uh, remembrances of, uh, particularly of martyrs and things like that? Why are we concerned to remember uh, these sorts of things? Well, we know that the remembrance of these kinds of things is in the providence of God actually uh, the beginning of, of, um, of the overthrow of all present and future plots against the same truth. Look at Esther 6, 1-3. 6, 1-3. From that night, commanded to bring the book of records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the doors, <coughs> the right hand of King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor and dignity hath been done to Mordecai for this? And for the king's servants that ministered unto him, there is nothing to yeah, So these remembrances um, are actually markers that we see used in Esther, and, and actually if we look, uh, we could look through other passages in the Old Testament, but we also see in church history, you know, how is it that these reformations come about? Essentially, what happens is people realize, they come to a point where all of a sudden their attention is called to the fact that, wait, uh, we didn't always do it this way. Things weren't always as corrupt. What happened? Well, there was a time when we had this heresy, and this is what happened, or that heresy, and that's what happened. And how did the church recover? Well, it recovered it in this way. And the recovery looked like that. You know, remembering these things clarifies. This is really, uh, I, I think, a, a point in the covenant where we're being told how important historical testimony is. Without historical testimony, we don't know if we're going backward or forward. We don't know if we're advancing or declining. These kinds of events, when we mark them out, when we call this this heresy, it's marked like that forever in the church. Right? Arianism, no matter how it's, it springs up, we are going to know it's Arianism if we know what Arianism is. Right? All of these other isms, all these other heresies, 
You know, they can be called various things, but in the end, we can trace them back. We can see them. They, they always bear some resemblance to their first appearance in the church. <clears throat> we know they have a bearing on the, um, the structure of political society as well. So this is important. Remembering how did they get into the church? Right? What happened? It's important to see what happened, you know, at, at uh, when we when we get to 1651, and we are faced with the protester and resolutioner split in the Church of Scotland. Right? It, it's it's important to understand that the the majority party who said, "Oh, well, let's let covenant breakers and covenant refusers." We're just going to let them hold places of power and trust in the civil government. Why would it affect the church? Well, we, we, we may not, you know, you may not have seen what would happen in 1651. But by 1690, you'd have to shut your eyes not to see what happened. How it undermined everything. It, it, it completely undermined the Second Reformation. And if people want to know what covenanters are complaining about, and why they're complaining so bitterly about it, or should be, it, it's all traceable back to that. But we need to know that. We need to understand that at some level, have some sense of that. You can't compromise with, with um, people who have one foot in and one foot out. There's a reason why the, the Covenanters and, and the Reformed Presbyterian Church historically have opposed voluntary associations. Right? They've, they've opposed it. it. It goes back to that issue. And we know that that can't be the way to get the church back by allowing that to go on. That's a sure recipe to, to ensure that we will never see the church reformed from the mess it's in today. Right, so the voluntary association issue is important. It's a separate issue from what we're talking about here, but my point is historical testimony points out the root and the fruit of these plots of the enemies. And so it's important for us to have some understanding of that so that we can avoid it, and so that we can seek to prosecute a reformation and a re reclamation from the, you know, the uh, damage done by these things. Moreover, we can say the knowledge of both past designs of the enemies of God and his true religion, along with any present conflicts, provides suitable motives for engaging in public social covenanting. Look at Judges 11, 12 to 21, and 30 to 32. Judges. 11 verses 12 through 21. And Jephthah sent messengers unto the king of the children of Ammon, saying, What hast thou to do with me, that thou art come against me to fight in my land? And the children of Ammon answered unto the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they, come, when they came up out of Egypt from Arnon even to Jabbok and unto Jordan. Now therefore restore these, those lands again peaceably. And Jephthah sent messengers again unto the king of the children of Ammon, and said unto him, Thus saith Jephthah, Israel took not away the land of Moab, nor the land of the children of Ammon. But when Israel came up from Egypt, and walked through the wilderness unto the Red Sea, and came to Kadesh, 
Then Israel sent messengers unto the king of Edom, saying, Let me, I pray thee, pass through thy land. But the king of Edom would not, would not hearken thereto. And in like manner they sent unto the king of Moab, but he would not consent. And Israel abode in Kadesh. Then they went along through the wilderness, and compassed the land of Edom, and the land of Moab, and came by the east side of the land of Moab, and pitched on the other side of Arnon, but came not within the border of Moab, for Arnon was the border of Moab. And Israel sent messengers unto Zion, king of the Amorites, the king of Heshbon, and Israel said unto him, Let us pass, we pray to thee, through thy land into my place. But Zion trusted not Israel through his coast. Zion gathered all his people together and pitched in Jehaz and fought against Israel. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Zion and all his people into the hand of Israel. They smote them, so Israel possessed all the land of the Amorites, the inhabitants of that country. And in verses 30 through 32, And Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou shalt... Thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into mine hands. Then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the children of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah passed over unto the children of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. <clears throat> okay, so again. Having a knowledge of these sorts of things, uh, historical testimonies in the church, are in fact uh, so many motives. They pr present us with so many motives for engaging in public social covenanting. Um, let's move on to question seven. Should those engaging in public social covenanting be motivated by the lack of prevailing by means of supplications, remonstrances, protestations, and sufferings? The answer is, again, yes. Second Chronicles 29, 10. The fact is, it's, it, it's a duty of the people of God to take hold of and make use of all of the means of supplication, remonstrance, protest, and even suffering as called to by providence. Look at Esther 5, 6 to 8, for example. I found favor in the sight of the king, and the king granted my petition and to perform my request. And Haman, come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them, and I will do tomorrow as the king has said. Yeah, so, you know, Esther uh, certainly avails herself of every means lawful be she can. However, when other means fail, Behooves God's people to lay hold upon God Himself and bind themselves to Him by means of covenanting that the church and nation might prosper. So we get Second Chronicles uh, 15, 3 to 7, and 12 to 15. Second Chronicles 15, 7, and David gathered up, gathered all his servants together to Jerusalem, and they gathered all the people of Israel together to Jerusalem, 
to prepare the ark of the Lord unto the, unto this place, which he had prepared for it. David assembled the children of Aaron, the Levites of the sons of Kohath, Uriel the chief, and his brethren, and 120, the sons of Merari, and his brethren, 220, the sons of Gershom, Joel the chief, and his brethren, and 130. And verse 12 through 15. And he said unto them, Ye are the chief of the fathers of the Levites, sanctify yourselves, both ye and your brethren, that ye can bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel unto the place that I have prepared for it. As ye did it not at the first, the Lord our God made a breach upon us that, that we sought him not after the due order. The Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. The Levites bear the ark of God upon their shoulders with the staves thereon, as Moses commanded according to the word of the Lord. Right. <clears throat> We also see the Corinthians, when challenged to fulfill their duty, first entered into covenant that they might better discharge their obligations from a willing heart. It's Second Chronic Second Corinthians eight, five and twelve. Second Corinthians eight five, and this they did not as we hoped, to first gave it ourselves to the Lord, and unto us by the will of God. Verse twelve. For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. So, <clears throat> again, um, if you're wondering why you're not prevailing by means of supplication, remonstrance, remonstrance protestation, or even suffering, uh, and, and this is one of the things that they're talking about here. They're saying, look, you know, covenant. Why? Uh, because, again, in covenanting, we're really moving from an obedience that is a legal obedience to what we would call a willing obedience, the obedience of faith. And that's the kind of obedience God is seeking. So that's what we should be trying to do. And that is what the council is here. Um, again, use every means possible. They're all different means: in petitioning and and remonstrance, uh, rem uh, the uh, protest or the suffering, even suffering. These are all um, these are all lawful, and these are all sometimes. Uh, you know, effectual to a certain degree, right? But the end that we're seeking is much broader and deeper in this covenant. And so, you know, this idea that we're going to uh, find this broad and deep answer uh, without covenanting, I think, is also misguided. So here they're they're admonishing and 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 enjoining and encouraging uh, through their own example. Uh, and in fact, that brings us to our next question. Question eight. Should those engaging in public social covenanting be motivated by the commendable practice of those reforming fathers gone before and the examples of God's people elsewhere? And again, the short answer is yes. Look at Song of Solomon 1 8. Verse 8. I know not, O thou fairest among women, that thy way of by the footsteps of the flock and the shepherds. 
you don't know what to do, uh, the Song of Solomon says, if the church doesn't know what to do, uh, follow in the footsteps of the flock, right? Feed feed the, the uh, sheep beside the shepherd's tents. Go, go in that way. Look for their examples. Where have they gone? What have they done? What did they do in like situation? Of course, we begin with the examples, and we've seen this. We we actually went over all of this over, uh, you know, the, a number of weeks ago. We went over this for a number of weeks itself. The examples that we find in the Bible, but also uh, there are examples when we get to the end of the Bible, right? And and the early church. I, I gave you some examples. From the early church, I gave you some examples uh, from different churches uh, of the Reformation, Lutheran and Reformed. And they're just saying, this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to conform our response and make our attempt in line with the historic practice of the church in these kinds of situations. So the example of people of God, while they walk in all his ordinances and commandments blameless, is a warranted motive to duty. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11.1 1. Yeah, Paul can commend as a warrant for duty, following him as he follows Christ, right? Uh, that's warrantable. And so this is really what they're saying. We're not just doing it because they did it, but we're doing it because they did it in accordance with the word of God. Right? And that is important here. Were we doubtful whether or not their observance of covenanting was according to the will of God, we shouldn't be encouraged by it. And I'd look in comparison to what Paul says in Romans 14.1. 14 1. Doubtful disputations. Yeah, we're not to open ourselves up to doubtful disputations. So later on, Paul says, you know, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. <clears throat> so if there's doubt in a matter like this, which is a matter, as we've seen, of worship, right, then we can end up turning it into sin. If there were anything doubtful about it, but it's not doubtful. You know, this is what we've seen over the last. Uh, 30 some odd weeks this isn't some doubt some doctrine that's only taught in one or two places in the Bible this is a doctrine which is found throughout the whole of the Bible when we're assured of its consistency with the divine record then we're called to follow it look at Hebrews 6, 11 and 12 Hebrews 6, 11 and 12 and we desire that every one of you to show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Yeah, them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You know, when we're looking back at the actions of, of um, these people, you know, this is again why... Uh, we particularly are interested in the accounts of martyrs, orthodox martyrs. Right? These are people who've laid down their lives for the faith. That is setting before us 
an example consistent with the divine record uh, to which we're called. And we have this again and again in the case of the Scottish martyrs. We see them standing for the National Covenant and the Solemn League and Covenant, among other things. All right, finally, question nine. Is it proper then that such public social covenants be entered into with hands lifted up to the Most High God, calling upon his name? And the answer, the short answer is yes. Ezekiel 20, verse 5, and Hebrews 6, 13. Yeah, and thus we see, does the Lord represent himself as swearing or covenanting with his people? Isaiah 55, 3. God makes a covenant with them, and he does so, um, we know, figuratively speaking, with hand lifted up. Now, um, let me just say, there are a lot of, of things in the Bible uh, that have to do with the lifting up of the hands. One prominent thing is praying. And so we see that there is some kind of relation then, isn't there, with uh, taking hold of the covenant of grace in praying. You know, we're, we're making application to God in a covenant way. You know, they're, all of these things are associated and connected in the Bible. And th what they're saying here is, this is what we're going to do. We're going to uh, take hold of God in, in covenanting. We're going to take hold of the covenant of grace, not simply as individuals, but as a nation and as a national church. Thus, again, an oath is sworn with the lifting up of the right hand. Uh, look at Daniel 12, 7 and Revelation 10. Five and six. Lifting up the right hand is uh, the way an oath is sworn, and, and we see they're conscious of this. Right? We have an example also of this recorded in the life of Abraham, the father of all the faithful. Look at Genesis 14.22. And also we see this in the admonition of Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 30, verse 8. 2 Chronicles 30, verse 8. Have you not stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves unto the Lord, and enter into the sanctuary which he has sanctified forever? 
and serve the Lord your God with a fierce so yield yourself literally means give the hand uh, yourselves unto the Lord, right? It's translated there as yield, but it means give the hand. And it's talking about this idea of, of entering into a covenant or lifting up the hand to make an oath uh, to God. And so this is what they're going to do. And this is what they're intending, right? And, and as I said, there are six articles. <clears throat> and then there's a conclusion in the Solemn League and Covenant. Each of these articles is uh, aimed at, at a little something different. Uh, some of them, there's a couple places where we're going to have to deal with some controversial ideas, uh, at least in terms of modernity. And there are other things where we're going to see uh, the, um, the seeding of what will become the, um, the the Westminster Assembly and, and the standards they produce, right? The the important thing to remember is all of this. Uh, in fact, all of that consolidation of the Second Reformation is a result of a renewal of the National Covenant, and now as we're we're going to go through this exposition. Uh, the taking of the Solemn League and Covenant. Without covenanting, it is impossible to imagine that there would be a Presbyterian church. And Presbyterians who are ignorant of and defiant of and willfully negligent, negligent of this doctrine of covenanting, uh, they're not fit to be called Presbyterians. And people who call themselves Reformed Presbyterians or Covenanters and want nothing to do with the National Covenant, the Solemn League and Covenant, uh, well, they're doubly condemned for their rejection of that which is binding, as we will see in future weeks, that which is binding upon the moral person. So with that, we'll finish tonight. And next time we're going to be looking at Article 1 of the Solemn League and Covenant.